We have the right to self-government, to self-determination of land. And the people that are here are going to go back and continue the struggle. This is not an end. It's only a beginning. Welcome to this episode of The True Canadians, the podcast. I am your host, David Wolinko, and the podcast is based on the book by the same name that I co-wrote with the Métis writer Patricia Russell. That recording you heard off the top was Métis hero Jim Sinclair at the First Minister's Conference on Aboriginal Constitutional Rights in 1987. We will be talking about that for some of our discussion today with Métis lawyer Jason Madden. Welcome, Jason. Thank you. Jason, this is the second of our two-part podcast special. The first one, we had a, a great conversation uh, about Métis self-government negotiations and legislation spanning the past decade. And I urge listeners who haven't heard that episode yet to give it a listen. Today, we are going to look back through some history, extending back to the years even before the famous resistances of Louis Riel and following all the way to the Powley case that went uh, right to the Supreme Court of Canada in 2003. Steve and Roddy Powley were charged in 1993 in the Sault Ste. Marie area with illegal hunting, as you know, and they disputed the conviction on the grounds that Aboriginal rights were enshrined in Section 35 of the Constitution Act of 1982. Heady stuff. Uh, our book, of course, was, uh, was written to commemorate the 40th anniversary of Métis rights being uh, recognized in the Constitution. The Supreme Court ruled the Pallies were exercising lawful Métis hunting rights. But uh, before that, let's go back and, and talk about what happened with the Métis historically, Jason. Uh, they were talking about a proud, independent, economically self-sufficient people uh, extending back 200 years or more who became uh, dispossessed of their homes and lands. Why did this happen? How have they worked their way back to the point of getting the recognition and, and now pending legislation we spoke of in the previous episode? Yeah, there is a persistence and a consistency in our story for those 200 years. And it's really about trying to find a way into Canada. And the Métis have always been an awkward fit, right? So Canada's approach as Canada, quote unquote, expanded westward. And, you know, there, there's a bit of a, you know, a, a fiction in that, of like the assumption that the West was to be explored. In the West, there were peoples with their own laws, with their own governments, with their own way of life that was well-established and was there long before Canada became Canada as we know it. And as Canada attempted to expand westward, it you know had a process of how it would engage with the quote-unquote Indians or First Nations um, of, of the language we use today. And that was through treaty making and uh, recognition of them as a collective and to recognize them uh, as such and to negotiate arrangements with them that set out that relationship. Even since the 1800s, the Métis continued to come to the table and say, well, you have to negotiate with us. But Canada's approach was saying, well, this is what we do with First Nations and we'll negotiate treaties with them. But with you, you know, the Supreme Court of Canada referred to it as the policy towards the Métis was less clear. That's a bit of an understatement. The policy was whatever got them through the day when they ran into our people. And usually it was they would make whatever promises they needed to to get what they wanted. And then 20 minutes after those promises are made, they would break them and they would take what they wanted 
and forget the people that were there. And so you see that beginning in the 1850s in you know the Micah Bay uprising, which is a part of the Cowley case history, where Anishinaabe and Métis join together and push back against Canada issuing mining permits up around Sault Ste. Marie. And that leads to Commissioner Robinson being dispatched up to negotiate a treaty with the Métis there. But his response to when the Métis come to you know, try to be included in the treaty or try to have their rights dealt with, he says, well, I have no mandate to deal with you. And that has been a seminal kind of point that the Métis have always heard is, well, we don't have a mandate to deal with you. We know what to do with the First Nations, but we don't know what to do with the Métis. Yes, uh, it seems the government has for a very long time been developing agreements with First Nations, uh, such as the Robinson Treaties on the north shore of Lake Superior and Lake Huron, uh, but not so with the Métis. In fact, it was partly a, a conflict over supply routes on Lake Winnipeg in Manitoba that resulted in the first major armed uh, confrontation between the Métis, led by uh, Cuthbert Grant, and colonists uh, in 1815 in what is known as the Battle of Seven Oaks or the Battle of Frog Plain. Uh, for many years after that, the, the Canadians still were not keen to negotiate treaties with the Métis. In 1850, that treaty, the Robinson Superior and Robinson Huron treaties, were ultimately negotiated with First Nations, but Métis were excluded. Um, as a group. And, you know, the Powley case was 150 plus years later, um, you know, of saying, well, just because you ignored us a century ago doesn't mean that those rights don't continue to exist and that community doesn't continue to exist. Of course, that that continues to play out. So as Canada, so think about that, that's 1850 around the Upper Great Lakes and Sault Ste. Marie. Fast forward 20 years and Métis identity and the Métis nation, um, you know, in the Red River area was even a stronger identity and significant numbers in the Red River settlement. I think that there were around 9,000 of the people there. The vast majority of them were Métis. The vast majority of those were children. And Riel and the Métis at the Red River, as uh, Canada tries to come in and survey the lands, he puts his foot down and says, um, not without first dealing with our rights. And the Métis developed their uh, list of rights um, to assert ourselves and to assert that you know, we have an interest in those lands that uh, will become would become the province of Manitoba, the old postage stamp province of Manitoba. 1.4 million acres of land gets protected for the Métis in, through Section 31 of the Manitoba Act. Just so people understand, that's around that would have been around 21% of the historic postage stamp province of Manitoba. That would have been Métis lands. And that would have given the Métis, in the words of the Supreme Court of Canada, the head start because everyone knew there was an influx of settlers coming. But Riel and others said, well, if we have this land, that would be able to allow us to continue to exist as a community and be a people and, uh, you know, and, and then play a fundamental role within the new province that is created as a part of Canada, which is Manitoba. Of course, we know that isn't what happens. You know, Sir John A. Macdonald at the time, even when he's making these promises to Riel and, and Riel saying, well, we can trust the Canadians. You know, Sir John A. Macdonald's writing in his diaries to his buddies saying, look, it, it's going to take considerable management to hold these wild people down, but we're going to swamp them within a generation. And they will essentially will have um, a whole group of settlers come in. And they will take control of the province. And we know that um, that story of 
you know, what happens after the promise is made is, you know, Wolseley's troops come out, uh, you know, to Manitoba. And this is an interesting story that connects to my home community. As Wolves, like uh, Nicholas Chatelaine, who is um, the chief negotiator for the half-breeds of Rainy Lake and Rainy River, my home community, who signed a treaty, a half-breed adhesion to the treaty uh, three in 1875, he goes to Riel's house and he says, look at when Wolseley's troops are coming through what's north now northwestern Ontario, we can cut down all the trees and, and take them out. And Riel goes, no, 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 we can, we can trust the Canadians, right, as they come through. It just shows that interconnection between the communities from Rainy Lake and Rainy River to Red River to the wintering sites on the prairies to Métis communities all the way up into Fort Chippewan or Lac La Biche, that they, they have a sense of each other, but they are distinctive communities that come together as a part of the, uh, the larger Métis nation. So, you know, Riel says, no, we can trust the Canadians. And Wolseley's troops, of course, arrive in the Red River settlement. And as opposed to respecting the deal and, and recognizing the rights of the Métis and the promises that were made, uh, a reign of terror ensues where people are stoned, um, homes are burnt, Métis are persecuted, literally chased out of the Red River settlement in many cases. And it's violence and mayhem. I think that Riel's may have trusted the Canadians uh, at the time, but the Canadians were not, you know, trustworthy at all. And that that is really just one of the many broken promises that underscore the history of Canada Métis relations. Just before you go on uh, and, and you go past that part in Red River, I, I have to point out, and, and I think we got this idea from you. We tried to illustrate what you've just described so eloquently with a visual in the book. And what we did is we 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 used the the Lucy pulling the, the football away from Charlie Brown that a non-Metee audience would be very familiar with, especially older people who, who grew up on that cartoon by Schultz. Uh, because yeah. he was supposed to negotiate McDonald. So McDonald is is Lucy and and Riel is is Charlie Brown and you know and he's got his Bill of Rights in his pocket. Because he was negotiating, that's his understanding was that they were negotiating and instead they sent troops. Yeah. And look at in our conversation, that's not the only Lucy in uh, Canadian history. This is this is an ongoing pattern of, you know, promises being made and Canadian officials or leaders not holding up those promises. And we're still seeing that same legacy today. Uh, in some of the challenges, uh, you know, that we face in in getting C-53 passed, from, you know, from some quarters. And also, there, you know, it's it's First Nations have had a struggle to make sure that their treaties and their rights have been recognized. And I think they've done an excellent job over the generations of making sure Canada comes to terms and understands those stories. But for the Métis, we've always been more so struggled because uh, without any legal framework or any, you know, formal recognition in Canada's history of um, of some of these things, you know, governments have been allowed to essentially just be Lucy and constantly pull the rug out from under the Métis, even when constitutional promises are made. Because, of course, as we know, Section 31 in the Manitoba Act was a constitutional promise. But we also know the promise of Section 35 in the Constitution Act 1982 was a promise that We've had to go to the courts in order to um, in order to impl- implement. I think that history, though, is so important. And I also want to just highlight that 
what Riel organized and did in 1869 and 70 was about self-government, right? It was about establishing a provisional government to say, as opposed to this being run by Hudson Bay, or as opposed to this being run by Canada, who is not born of these lands and would have to essentially send soldiers in order to implement its laws, they don't recognize or respect Métis self-government or that Métis are here as a distinct people, as a distinct uh, communities well before Canada became Canada, and that as a people, we hold the inherent right to self-determination and self-government, um, and that it needs to be reconciled with Canada. Canada isn't just a bulldozer that drove over um, you know, indigenous laws, indigenous lands, and, and made them its own. That, of course, is what large parts of Canadian history has been historically. I often call them, uh, you know, his story. It's usually written by older white men who don't really have have a perception or a narrative that they are the victors, as opposed to recognizing that Indigenous peoples are born of these lands and they are the original inhabitants of these lands, and that Canada has to reconcile with that reality, right? And and for a large part of Canadian history, it's been an assimilationist approach of trying to control and, uh, you know, assimilate as opposed to, you know, to be truthful and respectful and mutually reconcile of how, of how we work together or live together. So it's, and I just want to highlight, you know, when Riel's negotiating in the Red River in 1869 and 70, there's other Métis communities in, you know, what's called Rupert's Land at that time as well. So there's a well-established, you know, community around the North Saskatchewan River system in, in what's present-day Edmonton, up throughout the Athabasca uh, region in northwest Saskatchewan, in my um, neck of the woods in what's now northwestern Ontario, and of course, the buffalo hunters of the southern plains. So this narrative that everything began and begat at Red River isn't, you know, isn't uh, doesn't completely understand that full history of that there is these networks connected by whether it's the buffalo hunts, whether it's the fur trade, whether it's the York boats, and that these communities are well in place already in the 1800s, and they're interconnected, and there's extensive mobility between them, whether it's, you know, the community at Lac Saint Anne in Alberta, or whether it's, you know, the community of Beauval up in northwest Saskatchewan, our people um, in these communities are, are part of the larger Métis nation. And I would say through doing the court cases and, you know, I, I was able to see that those different stories that are woven together and bring together the larger, you know, Métis nation. It's not all, you know, one simple story, you know, that, that flows from the Red River. There is regionality. Um, in interconnectedness, in diversity in this story that is often, well, uh, Red River often gets the most ink. I would say some of the um, some of the more fascinating stories that I've been able to uh, see, you know, whether they're from Northwest Saskatchewan or, you know, within Alberta or, or within Ontario are just as important to understanding who the Métis people are and that broader struggle to find, to reconcile with Canada on a nation-to-nation, government-to-government basis. And I think that we see from the Red River Settlement and the Reign of Terror 
that Canada doesn't fulfill the promises there. We see dispossession. We see our people be dispersed in many ways, shapes, and forms. And, you know, Canada's not done yet in relation to implementing their assimilationist approaches. The communities that were well-established even before 1869 and 70, when Canada starts expanding further westward, the Métis begin to organize again and push back. And, of course, we all know the second resistance in 1885 in Batoche, and that's led by Riel and Gabriel Dumont again. And, and it's, it's clear. It's about self-government. It's about recognizing that there are people there with their own land-related interests and who see themselves as a distinct group and who can govern themselves. What we know, though, is Canada's approach to this was still we don't see you as a people. We won't deal with you as a collective. Um, we'll essentially, you know, take the lands without recognizing or respecting your interests and claims in those lands. I'll just highlight in the southern part of Saskatchewan that we now know in, you know, in that period, like leading up to 1885, the Métis there petitioned close to 70 times, sending 70 petitions to Canada. All of them, of course, you know, not responded to where they're saying, we see you coming and taking the lands again, and we're living here, right? So Métis in the Capel Valley area, they're seeing surveys and they're seeing homestead lands being set up, set up for others, but no one dealing with their land-related rights. And so, as we know, in 1885, there is the second real resistance and, you know, not able to secure negotiations with the Canadian government following that uprising. But there's a great quote from the Royal Commission on Aboriginal People's Report is, you know, some people think that the Métis disappeared after Riel was hung in the Regina Gallows, but that's just simply not true. These communities continue to exist People continue to exist, and they do whatever they can to keep our culture, our identity, our way of life, our families together. But after 1885, Canada does the same sort of approach that it did within the Red River of, well, this time through the Métis script system, or they're called the half-breed script commissions that start getting established now. The Dominion Lands Act allowed for those script commissions to be established even earlier, and they were set up to essentially address Métis land claims, or the language that they use is the Indian title preferred by the half-breeds. Um, and that system was in place, but Canada did nothing with it as, as it started to take the lands. After 1885, they set up the script commission. So in some of these commissions, as the government's going to negotiate treaties with First Nations um, in the same tent that the half-breed script commissioners are. And people are coming forward and they're either saying applying for script as half-breeds or as Métis, or they're applying uh, for treaty as, as First Nations. But you see this distinctive approach being applied. I think what's key, though, is the, the approach or the problem that the Métis have always struggled with is, well, what, we don't see you as a collective, so we won't deal with you as a collective or as a distinct group, right? We'll deal with you as individuals, right? It's kind of like the way the buffalo hunters would, uh, would hunt. You know, the best way to get the buffalo is you break up the herd, right? And so that's what Canada has historically always done to the Métis. We won't see you as a people. We won't see you as distinctive communities. We'll deal with you as individuals 
because you're a half-breed. And I, I will say, I do come from a community that has historically used that term, although I think in today's modern day, people rightfully are uncomfortable with it. You know, people are not breeds, um, you know, and but it, it did describe us as, you know, that we were distinct. We were not just mixed ancestry Anishinaabe or, you know, or mixed ancestry Cree people. We were a distinct group of people who were seen by the First Nations as such historically, but also seen by governments as such. And we saw ourselves as such and we acted collectively as such. Well, that seems like a good place to take a break. We've been speaking with Métis lawyer Jason Madden, and we'll continue in a moment. We will ask Jason more about the, the script system, which was a program the Canadian government introduced to issue to the Métis documents ostensibly redeemable for land or money. It was wrought with uh, disorganization and fraud. Jason uh, will talk about how the Métis started to get organized in the 20th century, the constitutional conferences that followed the Constitution Act of 1982, and the eventual Supreme Court decision over the Pali case and successes since then. Hi, I'm Audrey Petra, and 20 years ago, I was the interim president of Métis National Council, and some amazing things happened. I think about the decision in the Pali case, a case that had taken a long time through court, and I reached the Supreme Court. And I remember very, very clearly, we had a young lawyer, Jason Madden, just out of law school, that worked with us at Métis National Council. I certainly learned a lot from him. I believe he learned a lot going through that process of the Pauli case. And it's just like yesterday, I remember us going down to the Supreme Court to hear the decision of the Pauli case. We were there waiting for that document to come out. And as it came out, Jason and the other two lawyers were there to get the document, skimming through it as fast as they could, and us all going down the stairs because we knew there would be media there. It was a great decision for the Métis, for all of the Métis nation. And as the interim president at that time, it truly was a moment in history for me when we did a press conference to announce the result of that decision. And today I, I say that decision certainly helped move the Métis nation forward in many areas, not just in harvesting, but in resources that would help us clearly be able to, through our registries, make sure all of our citizens that wanted to be could be registered with the Métis nation. We went on from there of course, to other court cases that also helped us. We had great lawyers arguing that Pauli case in Jason Madden, Jean Taillet, and Clem Charche, true Métis citizens who totally knew what they were talking about. And that was a case that totally moved the Métis nation forward. We're back with Métis lawyer Jason Madden. Jason, we've been talking about uh, the Métis lacking recognition historically. You spoke about Canada's assimilationist approach to the Métis and effectively the, the stealing of the land. 
this made them the so-called forgotten people. That is a, a term that lends itself to our book subtitle, which is uh, more optimistically uh, forgotten nevermore. Uh, explain to us um, why this continued and, and the impact of the script system you were describing. The problem is Canada would never historically recognize us as collectives and deal with us as such. Um, I would say, you know, Métis repetitively approached the treaty tables as those were being negotiated in, you know, southern Saskatchewan or other locations, and the Métis were turned away. One of the chiefs in southern Saskatchewan says, you know, he was troubled by the treaty because the treaty commissioners were slow to take the hand of the half-breeds who, you know, were their relations and and should be um, treated with as well. We know that that historically never happened um, in the historic treaties, with the exception of my home community in Treaty 3, where the half-breed adhesion um, to Treaty 3 was negotiated in 1875, um, five years after, you know, um, the events at the events at Red River. But we see that that persistency of not recognizing our governance structures, not seeing us as a collective. If whatever benefits we do have, they came from being derivative to First Nations or through our First Nation bloodlines, as opposed to seeing us as a distinct people. And the script system just, you know, perpetuated that by attempting to, quote unquote, extinguish the Indian title of the half-breeds through issuing coupons to our ancestors. And of course, we all know that the story, and I've done podcasts on this in the past, and, you know, there's a lot of extensive writing on, you know, the the fraud and the dispossession that occurs through the script system, right? For, in particular, for Alberta Métis, you know, Métis were previously like the brokers and diplomats of the plains. And within a generation, they become known as the road allowance people who are living in road allowance communities in between First Nation reserves and white towns, because that's the only place that these communities were allowed to exist. Because through the script system, uh, Métis were dispossessed. Um, it was It was such a convoluted fraudulently devised system, it was never designed to ensure that Métis would actually get the benefit of lands that they were promised or any of the benefits that, uh, you know, that, that were supposed to be followed by virtue of the equitable principles of, from the Canadian government. None of those equitable principles were followed in, in the implementation of script. And so what you see is Métis dispossessed from, you know, lands within the beginning in the late 1800s and by the early 1900s, the communities being in a sense of desperation and living in road allowances or being going underground by virtue of the racism, uh, you know, and anger towards Riel and the previous resistances. It was not a good time for, to identify as the Métis. And more importantly, the communities weren't ex respected as such. And so you see the decimation of and the dispossession of the Métis in that early 1900s period. Interestingly, you do see Métis beginning in northern Alberta, beginning to organize in the 1900s, coming together, um, you know, with amazing leaders like um, uh, Brady and and others who, you know, are traveling from community to community with nothing but a typewriter and typing up petitions on behalf of Métis people. 
And, you know, through that process is the origins of what is the Métis Nation of Alberta, Otipimswek Métis government today. You know, they, they begin to organize in the 1900s. The colonies, um, they, they advocate for the Métis colonies to be established. The study that is done on the situation of the half-breeds in, in Alberta, which leads to the establishment of the colonies, which ultimately become the Métis settlements. But more importantly for uh, this podcast, those origins of uh, the Association of Northwest Territories, which leads to the creation of the Métis Association of Alberta, which leads to the Métis Nation of Alberta, which leads to the Otipimswek Métis government. Those, those embers are there, and it's our people coming together and organizing. Jim Brady, um, who was a well-known Métis leader, had this great quote. I, I loved it. He's like kind of saying, he goes, well, you know, we used to have the Gatling gun and we used to, you know, uh, you know, our weapon was, uh, you know, going full out in national wars against Canada. But he said, he says the last, you know, our new weapon is to organize. We have to bring our people together under this basic concept of organizing at the the local community level, bringing our people together through, you know, our own self-government structures that are created by ourselves, and that those self-government structures are the entities that we see today. Of course, one of the challenges is governments have have not historically recognized uh, those governance structures, but but uh, that that is somewhat changing. But when you look at the early 1900s, after you know the aftermath of the script system. You also have our veterans and our people going away to fight in the world wars. And when they come back, they won't accept the, um, you know, the veterans that come back who are, you know, in the foxhole with non-Indigenous peoples and fighting as, you know, brothers and people working together, you know, um, those veterans and uh, come back and they have a different concept of, in particular, after, uh, you know, the world war of, of kind of the, the fundamental rights of all peoples, right? And and human rights become a part of the discourse. So you see those leaders, many of them are Métis veterans, become a part of organizing, whether it's in the Métis Nation of Alberta or the Métis Nation of Saskatchewan or the Manitoba Métis Federation of our people asserting themselves at, and not accepting that Indigenous people are less than or inferior to settler populations and these political organizations, uh, which now today form the basis of our self-government structures, really push back and organize, join with First Nations as well as others to push for the recognition of Indigenous rights more broadly. And of course, in the you know the 70s and 80s, that leads to pushing for constitutional protection of Indigenous rights within uh, Canada's constitution, leading to the constitutional processes in the early 1980s that ultimately lead to Section 35 being included in the Constitution Act 1982. And of course, we all know Section 35, based upon the strong you know, leadership from uh, Harry Daniels, who is a Métis, used to be a vice president of the Métis Nation of Alberta from Regina Beach, you know, being adamant of that the Métis have to be included as one of the three distinct Aboriginal peoples protected within Section 35.2 of the Constitution Act 1982. 
And our leaders of the day, and there's many of them, as well as our MHC women and uh, community leadership that just push to ensure that we weren't left out of this. And, and I will say, you know, there was pushback from many who said, well, no, we'll include, you know, the Inuit and the Indians or the First Nations, but not the Métis. And our leaders at the time just wouldn't accept that and were successful in ultimately getting Métis included in Section 35. Now, it's got here. here's another one of those Lucy's pulling the rug out from under us. Um, you know, I think that the leadership of the day thought that this was a watershed. We had got it. Riel had got recognition of the Métis in 1869-70 uh, through the Manitoba Act. And now, finally, our leaders, again, were able to get, you know, Métis recognition in the Constitution, and everything was going to change. The problem, uh, you know, that happened is not everything changed. Uh, Section 35 has, you know, I think 38 words within it, um, but it doesn't explain what those rights that are protected within Section 35 are. How do they negotiate self-government? What does self-government include? How do we deal with Métis land-related issues? So Section 37 of the Constitution Act 1982 required the Prime Minister to call a series of constitutional conferences in the late 1980s to try to delineate or further hammer out what those rights in Section 35 were and are, and you know how do we deal with Métis self-government and Métis lands-related issues. And, you know, well, our leaders showed up at those conferences and our representatives like Jim Sinclair were amazing at the table. And uh, we had a lot of leadership there that, that were pushing on these issues. But those conferences ultimately ended in failure by the end of the 80s. And, you know, Jim Sinclair has this great quote where he says, well, he may not be back, but his people will be. That's what the Métis have always just been continuing to fight for for over the last 40 years since 1982 of kind of going, there's a promise there and we're not going to let you forget it, Canada. Indeed. Jim Sinclair saying those words opens our podcast. At the same time, then Prime Minister Brian Maroney was negotiating the Meech Lake Accord, which did not succeed. And then it was on to the Charlottetown Accord and again without success. And this was when it seemed the Métis was perhaps in, in exasperation and deciding to turn more to the courts. In the 1990s, you know, when the Charlottetown Accord uh, begins to be negotiated and Prime Minister Mulroney tries to see if he can really, in, for most part, deal with the Quebec issue. It's not, you know, his, his priority is not the Indigenous peoples, but as a part of those discussions leading to Charlottetown, there are a series of, you know, discussions with Indigenous peoples and the Métis National Council and the Métis Nation of Alberta and other Métis governments are able to negotiate what's called the Métis Nation Accord. That was a part of the Charlottetown package. It set out a negotiations process. It included the provinces from Ontario westward, as well as the Northwest Territories and Canada, who would sit down with Métis and begin to negotiate on issues like self-government, lands, all of the things that we're, uh, you know, um, finally getting to the table on today. Now, in 1992, Charlottetown was ultimately rejected by the Canadian populace as a whole. Um, and after that being rejected, um, 
governments largely walked away from the tables. So no one, everyone was kind of, I think, exhausted by the constitutional processes of the 1980s and 1990s. And so you see all of those provinces that were signatories to the Métis Nation Accord walk away from the table. So what the Métis, you know, the option then is Métis begin to turn to the courts and to litigate on Section 35 and the promise that's made to the Métis within that constitutional provision. And so in the 1990s, you actually, early 1990s, you see First Nations turning to the courts and taking cases like the Sparrow case and the Vanderpee case to the courts, and the Métis begin to litigate. And interestingly, the first case that does get brought forward is um, Clem Charche and Jean Taille, our legal counsel for two um, Métis harvesters up in northwest Saskatchewan, the Moran and Dion case. Um, and they are able, based upon Section 35, to go to court and prove that the Métis in northwest Saskatchewan have a right to hunt that is protected by Section 35, and they win at trial and they win at uh, the Court of Queen's Bench at the time. And um, the Saskatchewan government, and uh, I think it's probably tactically, decide not to appeal that case further up because they know they're going to lose and they all the way up and they don't want the Supreme Court of Canada decision. They rather, you know, keep it at the lower courts and, you know, at various points in time, try to ignore that decision. Métis are also turning to the courts in other provinces. So in Ontario, the Powleys are charged in 1993, and Métis Nation of Ontario takes the Powley case as a test case about the Sault Ste. Marie Métis community. And of course, in Ontario, the government of the day, the Mike Harris government, was had a very different approach to these issues. And their, their approach were there were absolutely no Métis in Ontario and absolutely no Métis rights whatsoever. And then, of course, uh, Jean Taille, who represented the Powleys at trial, um, you know, was successful based upon the same sort of framework that was advanced in the Morin and Dion case. And that recognized the Sault Ste. Marie Métis community had a harvesting right as well. And I guess for better or worse, Mike Harris said, I'm appealing this case all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada. So it's it's kind of interesting. You know, most people would think that, well, the first Métis case at the Supreme Court of Canada about uh, Section 35 would be from the Prairie Provinces. But because of that history that many people don't know, that's why the Powley case shows up as the first Supreme Court of Canada case um, on Métis rights, because the government of the day appealed that decision, you know, all the way up. And so I think it's really important to understand that's why Powley is such a significant decision because it's a watershed. It's a sea change. Even after Powley, we had to go back to the courts to consolidate Powley. And so negotiations uh, for harvesting agreements have occurred. And, you know, there's, of course, harvesting agreements that have been negotiated in Alberta um, that consolidate those wins in 2004 and 2019. The of Federation signed a harvesting agreement in 2011. The Métis Nation of Ontario has signed harvesting agreements in 2004 and 2018. And so, you know, when we had to go back to the courts to litigate these issues out, um, you know, we've also been able to leverage those court cases to get to the negotiation table on harvesting-related issues. And 
you know, while those agreements that we have are far from perfect, they at least, you know, recognize some aspects of the Métis rights, but we definitely know that the geographies need to be expanded and, you know, Métis continue to turn to the courts to um, push the envelope and to expand those territories. Yes, and of course, the most recent example being the Supreme Court's unanimous decision to uphold Bill C-92 on Indigenous rights over youth and family. And meanwhile, Bill C-53 is working its way through Parliament. Uh, Jason, thank you so much for your learned perspective on Métis history and the challenges that really have spanned 200 years or more. We've been speaking with Métis lawyer Jason Madden, and don't forget to listen to the first part of uh, this two-part special and future episodes. Jason, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.